Good afternoon. If you want to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18, that's going to be our primary text this morning. Matthew, or this afternoon, sorry, I'm in preacher mode here. Uh, Matthew 18, and we'll begin in verse 21. So Matthew chapter 18, verse 21. Uh, Matthew, an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ, one of the original disciples, and eyewitness to the things of which he writes, writes this by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Then Peter came up and said to him, Jesus, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Father, we pause right now at this point in time to ask for your blessing on us in a very particular way that you would open your word up to us and open us up to your word. As we consider what it is to forgive and and, and how you have forgiven us and how much it cost you to forgive us, would you, by your Holy Spirit, uh, convict us of those areas where we have not understood your forgiveness, where we have taken it for granted, where we have treated it as as trivial. Would you forgive us of that? And then would you convict us of areas where we have not been like you, where we have not forgiven people from from our hearts? So Father, again, open your word up to us, please, and open us up to your word. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, here in America, we're a country of second chances. At least that's what we like to think anyway. 
It, it, it really doesn't matter who it is. The more high profile, the better, though. We, we like to forgive uh, those who have transgressed, at least if that transgression isn't against me particularly. I am, I am incredibly patient, as are almost everybody in America, uh, with sins not committed against me, but just sins committed perhaps against other. Whether it be an athlete who has messed up, if, if he can carry the football well, then boy, we are a forgiving nation. Uh, actors, politicians, public servants of many kinds, teachers, we, we at least say that we love to forgive. We pride ourselves even. You've probably heard that. We're a, we're a country of second chances, right? If, if, if people will repent, then, then we are happy to forgive. You know, well, quite, you know, they don't even necessarily need to repent in, in any biblical sense if they will at least regret what they did. You know, frankly, they don't even need to regret what they did. If they would just make an excuse that, that say, to quote a high-profile public official in Portland, I, I just lost my mind for a while. Um, then, then, then we're willing to give another chance. But, how do we do that? How do we do that? How do we forgive? And what does it mean when we say that we forgive another? What does it mean when a believer in Jesus Christ grants forgiveness? What does it mean when an individual who does not know the Lord says that I forgive? Can they even forgive? I would submit to you that America is really not very good at repenting because we really don't know how to forgive. We don't know what forgiveness is. We don't know what forgiveness actually costs. I think what America thinks of forgiveness is we're just going to give you another opportunity to do whatever it is you have been doing as if you didn't sin as if you didn't transgress in some way. And what ends up happening when we do that is that though we pride ourselves perhaps on being a nation that is quick to give second chances, we're actually a nation that is really, really good at holding grudges. We're really, really good at harboring bitterness in our heart because not, we don't know what sin is. And if we don't know what sin is, then we certainly can't offer forgiveness in any meaningful sense. I think what happens when people in America say, I forgive you, is that we're just pretending that it didn't happen. That is, I'm just merely forgiving you. And then what happens on the street is that people have the same expectations of God. A German poet once said, of course God will forgive me. That's his job. I think that's the attitude that many people have because that, that's what forgiveness is. That somehow my transgression against you or my transgression against, against God, if he actually exists, just kind of dissipates up into the cosmos and is no more. And when people find out what the Bible actually says about forgiveness. When people hear the gospel preached and they find that, that, that God grants forgiveness on the basis of the sacrifice of his son, uh, people push back on that. People push back on that. Because it appears when people hear that that God doesn't just merely forgive. He doesn't just merely forgive like I do. Well, And if, and if, if, if I can merely forgive, then, then why can't God? What is all this cross talk? 
What is the point of that? And then people lash out. And the result is that the gospel is currently being undermined by this question. Why did Jesus have to die? I understand that you say that he did die. I understand that you're trying to explain to me why, but I don't get it. If I can just forgive, why can't God just forgive? And what Jesus teaches us in this parable is that God cannot just forgive. He does not merely forgive. And neither do I. Neither do you. Neither does anybody else in this world. And yet, God does forgive. God does forgive. And His expectation is that those whom He forgives will in return forgive others. And so, as we work through this text, I would invite you to consider, consider this. What are my presuppositions about sin and about God that drive me to my understanding of what forgiveness is? Both the forgiveness that God grants to me and the forgiveness that I say that I grant to another. And then I would also invite you to to consider this as well. Are there areas where I have misunderstood how much forgiveness actually costs? And in so doing, I have treated people as irrelevant, as meaningless. I have not treated them as the Lord has. So let's pick up our, our, our parable here. Uh, the, the parable is introduced to us by a question uh, by, by Peter. And, and at this point in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus has been ministering for quite some time. He's, he, he's just about turning the corner to where he's headed for Jerusalem at this point in time. So he's at the tail end of his public ministry, and, and, and he has done some teaching on, on um, God's heart for the lost and, and, and God's desire that people who are, are part of this community that Jesus is going to be building, that, that they are, are pure, they take care of one another. And so Jesus, in Matthew 18, does some significant teaching on 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 the the steps that we are to take in the local assembly in other people's lives when they begin to go sideways and and so we know this uh, as as church discipline this in matthew 18 especially verses 15 through 20 this is jesus's teaching on church discipline it's jesus's provision to us for for maintaining purity in his church and as an instrument of sanctification to keep us holy to keep us persevering in the faith and and he finishes he concludes this brief teaching on on church discipline in verse 20 with a statement that that where two or three are gathered in his name to execute what has become or, or what is this final and last resort step of discipline that is to remove an unrepentant sinner from fellowship in the church then then you do so jesus says as if i am even there where where two or three witnesses are there and you have gone down these steps and and it comes to the point where you must remove someone from 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 fellowship this is so critically important to me that jesus says it is as though i am there with you in fact i am you carry with you this local church this incredible authority that I alone have, where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. That is, when the church executes discipline on an individual, it is Jesus who is doing it through us. Weighty, weighty stuff. 
And, and the, the disciples, if they were sitting there, they had to have been cognizant of the fact that this is a big deal. This sounds like civil law sorts of stuff, the, the kind of stuff that harkens back to uh, the law when Israel was being constituted as a nation and when Israel had an independence, at least in terms of, uh, at least as far as the other nations were concerned. This is a weighty, weighty thing. And so Peter, desiring some clarification, we're told that then Peter came up. And so something in what Jesus said has clicked something in Peter's mind. And he comes up and he asks, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times. Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven Peter wants to know, and so, 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 he, so he comes up, really, uh, how many times am I supposed to forgive, Lord? He, he offers up a big number. It, I, I mean, this is the number of completeness. It's the number of wholeness. His, his best guess, you know, he knows Jesus is full of mercy, full of compassion. He's probably in the ballpark if he guesses seven times. How many, Lord? As many as seven times. This is probably intended to express just the outer limits of generosity. I mean, in, in rabbinical lore, seven was just over the top. And so, so Peter's being over the top. Jesus responds in his, his typical jaw-dropping form. He says, I do not say to you seven times, Peter. I say to you 70 times seven Many of our, our Bible translators now are thinking that, that really it's, it's not 70 times 7, it's, it's 77 times. Uh, 77, hearkening back to Genesis chapter 4, verse 24, where, where, where Lamech, if you remember, he, he's, he gives this little poem that says, if Cain's revenge is sevenfold, then Lamech's is 77-fold. Okay, so, so Lamech is a man who will be avenged. Cain's vengeance was big, but mine is bigger. And, and Jesus, if, if this is 77 times, which I, I suspect it actually is, and 77 times, then then. Then Jesus is saying, as, as draconian and as merciless as Lamech was in taking vengeance, you are to be just like that in forgiving. 77 times. Even if it is 70 times 7. The point is, it is a huge, huge number. It's, it, it, it's really not even a specific number to tally. For, for a disciple of Jesus... There is to be no calculation to your forgiving, Jesus tells Peter. There's no limit to it. The point is this, Peter, if you need a number, if you're keeping track, you ain't forgiving the way I want you to. What is forgiveness? What is it to forgive someone? Jesus, no doubt, recognizing a a common look that he probably got from his disciples, which was lack of comprehension. (laughs) Just kind of like, what is it you're saying? He tells a parable to them to explain. Peter says, how many times am I to forgive? To forgive, the the, the language means here in in our text, to to send away or to let go. If, If someone sins against me, how many times do I have to let it go? 
how many times do I have to uh, uh, send that, that, that sin away to where it, it is no longer a barrier between me? How, how many times do I have to send that sin away in the sense that I'm, I, I'm not going to actively take vengeance? I'm not going to be bitter. I'm not going to harbor resentment against you. How many times do I have to do that? And so, so Jesus begins in verses 23 through 25. I'll, I'll read it again. Uh, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now, Jesus is saying this. Notice how he introduces his his parable here. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. So, so this, this, this radical forgiveness, this is what life in the kingdom is like, Peter. And, and we've, we've already read it, and so we know that, that God is this great king, right? And, and so we're, we're, I'm going to break down the parable here for you, and, and I'm just going to jump ahead to the conclusion, which is God is that great king, okay? Uh, there's no real mystery there. But, but life in the kingdom is characterized by this kind of forgiveness. And uh, so, so one of the king's servants owes 10,000 talents. Now, we're not told exactly what this servant was, but, but this is an astronomical amount of money, which I'll describe that here in a moment. So it seems that this servant was not just like, uh, you know, the, the, the fellow who shined his shoes or, or, or who worked in the kitchen. And it's probably someone who was a, a steward of his resources, and it was typical practice today for servants of the king to handle all the finances of the realm. And, and if you're a king at this point in time, the per, your personal treasury is the treasury of the nation. They are the same things. Somehow, somehow, probably through some sort of mismanagement, some sort of embezzlement, who knows, one of these servants owes the king 10,000 talents. Now, I don't know if you know how much money that is, but in Jesus' day, a denarius, just one little denarius, was it was an acceptable day's wage for a laborer. A, a talent, on the other hand, is the highest monetary standard. And in equivalent values, one talent would represent what a laborer might, to, might hope to earn in like half his life. So, so two talents would be a lifetime of labor. But it's not just one talent. It's not just two talents. It's 10,000. Literally, it's, it's a myriad it's strictly speaking, if, if you had 10,000 talents of gold, that debt in today's dollars would be about $12 billion. It, it's just a jaw-dropping amount of money. And, and, and the point, of course, is that you don't do this kind of arithmetic. Jesus is speaking in, in hyperbolic terms about a ridiculous debt. You have the highest monetary value with the highest number in the Greek-speaking language. You combine those two, and what do you get? bazillions, right? It, 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 a, it, like a little kid comes up and says, I wish I had a bazillion, hundred million, gazillion dollars. It, it's, it's, it's funny money. It, it's, it's, it's like a, a truckload of monopoly money. It, it's not even based in reality anymore because it's so much. That's what Jesus is saying here. A servant owed his master a hundred gazillion dollars. <laughs> hundred gazillion dollars. And so right off the bat, we're told, we learn two things about forgiveness here. And the first is this, that, that sin creates a debt. Sin creates a real debt. When a person sins against me or when a person sins against the Lord, that individual incurs a moral debt 
to me and to God because of the offense. And, and apparently, I, I have the right to collect on that debt. I, I have every right to do that. Now, that, that debt has to be proportionate to the offense. And so you have, you know, lex talionis, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, that sort of thing. That's just a basic principle of justice, right? That, that, that if someone sins against me, then there's some sort of debt that's owed, and, and that debt has to have some connection to um, the offense. Some connection to the offense. Now, now we also notice in here that, that, that forgiveness is not just forgetting or minimizing the sin. Uh, to forgive is to not hold a grudge. It's to not cherish bitterness. It's to not harbor a desire for harm. And, and what we find here is that the king, quite frankly at this point, is not even capable of, of just forgetting that debt. That would be denial. That's not what forgiveness is. Forgiveness is not forgetting. Forgiveness is not uh, minimizing the sin. That's denial. And that's not forgiveness. The second thing that, that, that we'll pick up on here, and, and we'll flesh this out as we go along, is that, is that life in the kingdom apparently is characterized by radical forgiveness of radical debts. When, when asked how his disciples are to forgive, Jesus speaks of this king who, owes a, who is owed a ridiculous amount of money. It's a ridiculous debt. It's a debt that can't even be quantified in reality. That's what life in the kingdom is. Jesus says that in verse 23. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to this. Now maybe Jesus, as he's listening to Peter, he, he notes something self-promoting or something self-congratulatory in Peter's attitude. How many times? Seven times? Am I supposed to forgive my brother seven times? Peter asks. Would, would, would Peter dare to put a number on how often he ought to forgive someone when his very participation in the kingdom is made possible by a king who has forgiven him so much more? I don't know whether or not Peter had that attitude. It's not there transparently in the text. But I know that we're not to have that attitude. I know that we're not to. Okay, so let's, let's keep going. Verse 26 and 27. The debt's forgiven. The servant fell on his knees imploring the king, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. In this passage, we have this strong imagery of this, of this individual falling down. He, he prostrates himself before the king. It shows how desperate he actually is. And, 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 and he makes a pledge. He says, I'm going to pay you everything. And of course, we know because it was $100 bazillion, right, that that's a ridiculous pledge. There's no way he can make good on that. I mean, the, the man has no hope of ever paying this debt back. No hope whatsoever. And that's the whole point. Right? We're, we're talking about fantasy money here. And yet, the king forgives him. And, and, and in so doing, the mercy of the king is magnified as we compare it to the foolishness of that pledge. I will pay you back everything. And, and the king, who knows he cannot pay it back, that, that debt cannot be pay, paid back, he forgives him the debt. Now, this would have completely surprised, I think, the readers, the audience of Jesus, who, who would assume that the king would see through this false bravado of the servant and realize there was no hope of paying that loan back. And so the, the king's decision, clearly, though, 
is not based on calculation of the possibilities of repayment. That's not the point. We're told why he forgives. Why is that? Out of pity for him, the master of the serv- that servant released him and forgave him the debt. It comes from the heart of this king going out to him. It's, it's based upon compassion. It's motivated by compassion. It's not motivated by calculation. It's motivated by compassion. The same kind of quality that as we read through the Gospels, we see Jesus exercising time and time again. He was moved by compassion. Moved by compassion. And here the, the king of this parabolic realm is moved by compassion and he forgives. It's a, the perfect picture of God who shows grace and mercy to, to undeserving sinners. So we find out something here about what forgiveness is and that the motivation for God's forgiveness is mercy. It's mercy, mercy all the way. You see, when, when God forgives sin, there is no calculation, there is no strategy attached to it. God is not in the business of forgiving sin so that he can win friends or that he can bring allies into the group. He doesn't look down on you and say, man, i got to get this guy in on my team, so I'm going to forgive him to bring him in with me. There's no sense of that here. God forgives because of what is in himself. That is mercy, not what is in you, some sort of merit. Do you understand this? God's forgiveness of you is based entirely upon who He is and has nothing to do with who you are. I think the implications of that are outstanding. Now, that at first brush, that sounds kind of demeaning to me. I mean, aren't I somebody? Aren't I something? I mean, doesn't God want me on his side? Doesn't he want me to be part of his family? Can't I, am I not a strategically significant person in the kingdom? Of course I am, I might want to think. And yet, the, the reality is, well, no, you're not. And Todd, this puts you in a much better place anyway. If God's forgiveness of me was based on my utility to him, then there's a conditionality that is attached to that that I am, quite frankly, terrified by. If, if God's forgiveness of me is based upon some sort of quality in me, then that puts me in the place where I have to keep being of benefit to God in order to stay in His graces. But in point of fact, God is completely and totally self-sufficient. There is no conditionality attached to His love in terms of what I need to do to measure up, of what I need to be adding to Him, what I need to be bringing to the table. And so He is always completely able to forgive because His motivation to forgive comes from who He is, His compassion for me, not on my merit. This also means that God's motivation to forgive has absolutely nothing to do with the magnitude or the size or the quality or the nature of your sin. You can never, ever out-sin God's forgiveness. You cannot do that. You can never shock God into inactivity. You can never repel God to where He is not going to be compassionate or merciful towards you. You can do that to me. (laughs) You can shock me into inactivity. You can make my jaw drop. 
You can do all. And, and I'm not saying that God is not abhorred by our sin. I'm not saying that. I'm just saying that God's sin, or, or that, that our sin, the, the, the quantity of it, the quality of it, has nothing to do with God's motivation to forgive. It's always based on His compassion. We find something else here that's kind of hidden in the details. God cannot just forgive. God cannot just forgive. As I mentioned before, the, the servant owes a tremendous amount of, of money to the king. And, and, and in that culture, the, the public treasury was the personal treasury of the king. And so when the, when the king or the emperor, when he forgives the debt, that debt doesn't just dissipate into the cosmos. It doesn't just go away. Someone has to pay for the debt. Who pays for it? The king. The king basically says, you owe me this. I forgive you the debt. I'll pay for it. The king literally balances his own books by giving that money essentially to the servant. He doesn't just forgive. He pays the debt himself. That, that debt hasn't disappeared until it's reconciled somehow. That king did not just forgive. It might seem like he did, but if we think about it for just a second, we realize the king, that he didn't just forgive. Real money was stolen for him. There was a real offense with a real debt. And when he forgave it, he absorbs the loss. Literally, he pays the debt for the man. The king can't just forgive. And neither can God. Neither can God. Proverbs chapter 17, verse 15. A very, very important proverb. I, I, would, I would recommend that you highlight this one in your Bible because it makes uh, the, the gospel makes a lot of sense in light of this. It, it, it reads this way. He who justifies the wicked and he who condemns the righteous are both alike an abomination to the Lord. Let's focus on that first part of it. He who justifies the wicked. He who just declares the wicked to be righteous is an abomination for or to the Lord. For the Lord to just forgive. For the Lord to not punish sin. For the Lord to, uh, who, who created all and, and in whom, by whom, and through whom justice flows and is understood. God, in His character and essence, is the very standard of what righteousness is. And He says, it is an abomination to me for someone to declare the wicked righteous. That is, that they are just declared righteous. That is, that they are just forgiven. You, you get the sense that, that, that God cannot do that because it is a betrayal of who He is as the Creator and Lord and Judge of the cosmos. It, it, it's as if it would tear apart the moral fabric of the universe because God would be denying who He is. God has never just forgiven Pretended that sin did not matter, that, that, that sin didn't happen, that sin somehow just kind of dissipates out into the cosmos. No, why can't God just forgive? And what we mean by that when, when people ask it who, who don't understand Christianity or, or maybe who, who are Christian but haven't thought through the, the, the gospel uh, as, as, as well or as deeply as they ought to have, they, they might ask, why was it that Jesus had to die? Why, why does there have to be some sort of sacrifice for sin? Why can't God just 
pretend that the offense didn't happen and, and let everybody in, whatever in is. Right? Why can't God just do that? Well, I suppose God could do that, perhaps, if you were a morally insignificant and irrelevant being to Him. But in point of fact, you are precisely not that. You are significant and relevant to Him because you are a, you are a moral agent before Him. Consider Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2 where God creates humans, you, me, Adam and Eve to begin with, as His image bearers. He creates us in His image. That is, we, we represent God. Notice that even as God says, let us make man in our image, the very next thing that follows in that is, is God saying, let them exercise dominion over basically everything I just made. Take care of my stuff, God says to His, his image bearers, His, his, his stewards his ambassadors in this land, God's representatives. And, and when we sin against God, it, it's not just a sin against some sort of impersonal law, but it's a, sin, it's, a, it's a sin committed by an ambassador, by a representative. It's, it's, it's treacherous. It's, it's treason is what it is. That's what we find in Genesis 1 and 2 and then with the fall in Genesis 3. You see, the, God can't just forget your sin because you are significant to Him. You are moral agents before Him. You are the pinnacle, the high point of His creation. You are the ones that God has granted dominion over all of His stuff to. You matter. You matter before God. Turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, just... Keep your finger in Matthew 18, or a bookmark, because we're going to be in Romans 3 for just a bit. This is how I know that God can't just forgive. Why can't God just forgive? In, in, in Romans 3, the, the, the preceding context of verses 21 and following, it, it, it describes both the depravity and the hopelessness of humanity. All people are thoroughly lost in sin. We see that, that Paul in verses 9 through 18, he just runs through this laundry list of Old Testament verses that speak about how depraved humanity is. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. And he goes on about how uh, sins of the tongue and sins of the hand are, are, are just characterize who we are. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And the result, as we find here, is that no one merits any favor with God at all. No one merits any favor with God at all. And that the, the law was given, we find that in chapter 3 as well, following in verses 19 through 20, we find that the law was given, but that's not even going to help us at all. The law was given by God, but it only highlights what sin is. It, it actually increases human guilt. It's, it's a good law, it's a righteous law, but we're so depraved, we're so unrighteous that, that, that when the law comes, it just exposes who we really are. And the result is what you would expect when such a flawed being confronts such a holy God. There is judgment and condemnation and death. That's what we find in, in the, first few, uh, the first 20 verses of chapter 3. But then we get to verse 21. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. Verse 21, after this just horrific drumbeat of death and condemnation and judgment, it announces that all is not lost. 
God has, has intervened in time-space history to reveal His saving righteousness. But now the righteousness of God has been revealed. And, and, but, and God's not going to do it through the works of the law. That doesn't work. There's a whole Old Testament of failure that is testimony to the fact that the law is powerless to save. So he's not going to do it that way. Although the law, as, as, as says there, the law and the prophets anticipated it. It, it bore witness to it. it. It predicted that the Lord would step in and do something. Rather, God is going to reveal his saving righteousness through the gospel. The same gospel that Paul talked about in Romans chapter 1, verse 16 and 17, where he says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. So this is what God is doing. This righteousness of God is being manifested. Now it is. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. This saving righteousness of God is, has been manifest. That is, it's now available through faith in Jesus Christ. And, and now remember the context of Romans 3 here. Right? There's universal sin and depravity. There's judgment. There's condemnation. There's death. It's this unrelenting drumbeat of hopelessness and doom. It's like, I don't know if you're into the, uh, to the Lord of the Rings uh, books or movies, but in the books, when the people, are, uh, when the Fellowship of the Ring is in Mordor, not Mordor, uh, Moria, and they awaken the orcs who are there, there's these drums that begin to beat, and it's terrifying. Doom, 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 doom. That's what humanity has been under. And that's, what, that, that's this judgment and condemnation that, that Paul is talking about. And, and there's no hope for it. It's just doom, doom, sin, death, condemnation, judgment. That's, that's what hangs over our head until Christ comes. Now, verse 22, we can be saved. The saving righteousness of God is available through faith in Jesus to those who believe. How can such a thing be? Verse 23, Paul recaps the human dilemma. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've lost the glory of God. We've been cut off from the glory of God. We're fundamentally incapable of glorifying God. To use Paul's language from Romans 1, we're all idolaters. How is this possible? Verse 24, those who believe in Jesus are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Those who believe in Jesus are justified. That is, they are declared righteous at the bar of God's holy justice. They're declared to be just. That is, you are forgiven. And we're told in this passage that this declaration of God, that you are righteous before Him, is a gift of grace. But it is not a costless gift. We know that it is a costly gift because the language tells us it was paid for by Jesus. That's the point of Paul saying that it was through the redemption, that is, the purchasing out of the slave market, the buying. You have been bought. It, you, it costs something that is in Christ Jesus. And this gift, this gift, the declaration of your righteousness, it was not conjured out of midair. Remember Proverbs seventeen fifteen. He who justifies the wicked is an abomination to the Lord. You have been justified, that is, declared righteous, even though you were, verse 23, a sinner who had fallen short of the glory of God. 
I thought God said that anyone who, who declares the wicked to be righteous is an abomination. How does this work? Because this gift is legitimately bought by Jesus Christ. How? Verse 25 tells us, whom God, so Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Notice here, God takes the initiative. He sends Jesus as a propitiation by His blood. This propitiation there, it means to, uh, to turn away wrath, to absorb wrath. We, we learn from this that God is really, genuinely angry at sin. Of course, we knew that from Matthew 18, that there's a real debt it's a hundred bazillion dollars, right? It, it, it cannot be paid. It, it, is an, it is as if it were an infinite debt. It cannot be paid. God is really angry at that. That wrath, though, the cost of the sin was absorbed by Jesus. Notice it didn't just dissipate off into the cosmos. Like, like you know, God takes a walk to cool off so then he can come back and, and embrace me. It doesn't work that way. It was justly poured out. The penalty, that is the cost of sin, was legitimately paid. And, and, and we note here that it was done at God's initiative. It was God's plan. God sent His Son. Jesus didn't just sneak off and illegitimately mollify the anger of His Father. This is an eternal Trinitarian plan at God's initiative because God, like the King in our parable, was moved by compassion and mercy. Notice it says in verse 25, this was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. This is just another way of saying God can't just forgive. See, the, the, the imagery here, it shows God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. What does that mean? And, and here, we get to the heart of why God cannot just forgive. Verse 26, it creates the image of God, an, an image, so, so you've got to bear with the, 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 the language here. It, it creates the image of God being judged by someone. Maybe it's the rulers and principalities in the cosmos, maybe it's a bystander, or maybe it's you and me, who knows. See, but apparently, up until redemption was legitimately bought by Jesus, there had been, as we know, thousands of years of human sin, and God was forgiving it. But on what basis? Imagine there's a prosecuting attorney, and, and God's in the dock, and he accuses him, you claim to be just, but you're actually unjust. You claim to be righteous, but you're actually unrighteous. You're not holy. And what's the evidence for this? Because you told Adam, on the day that you eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. You, you said that there is a penalty for sin, and yet for thousands of years now, you have been just forgiving sin. And that forgiveness is baseless, groundless, and illegitimate. You're just forgiving sin. That is, you are unrighteous, God. Someone might say, well, well, what about all those Old Testament sacrifices? To which the prosecuting attorney says, those won't work. Those are animals. And the only one who can atone for human sin is a human. You can't substitute a bull or a goat. And if anybody's been reading their Bibles, they get to the New Testament. We know that's the case. 
The book of Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4 says, The blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sin. So what on earth was going on? What on earth was going on? They, are they the basis for God's forgiving? You see, the question that Paul is addressing here in this is, is not how can God justly punish sinners. The question is how can God justly forgive anyone? And apparently, when Jesus goes to the cross, God puts forward a propitiation by His blood. It is a demonstration of God's righteousness as if to the cosmos. I am righteous. In my patience, I had been passing over former sins. I had been forgiving them, but that forgiveness was always based upon what would happen when Christ went to the cross. God says, I am righteous. I do not just forgive. I forgive but I do not merely forgive. See, God can't just forgive for all the reasons related to God's character that that I've covered, and quite frankly, neither can you. To just forgive someone for his actions against you is to tell that person, you know, you're really not that significant to me. You really don't matter. You're morally and personally irrelevant to me. It's to believe that the moral actions of another are so insignificant and weightless that, that, that they just dissipate into the cosmos. Of course, that's not the case. People matter. You matter, and I matter, and in our relationships with one another, and in your relationship with God, you matter because you're a moral agent. We're image bearers of God, and it is the height of arrogance to think that, a, that, that sin against me doesn't matter. Sin against God doesn't matter. Of course it does. That's the way God created the universe. That's who He is in His being. Sin matters because God is holy and just. He created us to be His representatives here. Sin matters because you matter. Sin is significant because you are significant. You're a true moral agent before God. We all are. I mean, even if someone comes to you and apologizes and you really didn't even know about it and it seems irrelevant, you still have to honor their apology to you. The proper response that that acknowledges at the very least that they had some sort of subjective guilt before you. You might not have even known it, but they did. Now this tells us, this tells us that the forgiven are free at a great cost in Romans 3. For the forgiven, freedom comes by grace through faith, but but the forgiven dare not think that that salvation is cheap. It is costly. There is a cost to be paid. And that cost is absorbed by God at His initiative. God put forward Christ Jesus. That's how God can forgive. And whenever I read Paul, I'm just struck by the fact that I, I just don't think Paul ever got over the fact that he was saved. Have you noticed that with Paul? He, just, uh, he was the chief of sinners. <laughs> he, he was a persecutor of the church, and yet God in His mercy called him. How often do you engage in conversations with your friends about the wonder of your salvation in Christ? Have you gotten over the fact that you're forgiven? We ought not to. We find also here that the Gospel offers true freedom. If we return to our parable in Matthew 18, we recognize that though the king was perfectly in his rights to throw the man in prison, he's moved by compassion and he releases the man. The man doesn't just escape. The man doesn't just get off. There's, there's no merit in the man. He makes stupid boasts about being able to pay back a gazillion dollars. No, the, the driving force to this forgiveness is it, it, it's not a miscarriage of justice. 
It's compassion. The king pays the debt. The same kind of compassion from the heart that moved Jesus time after time after time. And that, that debt was forgiven by the only one in a position to absolutely forgive the debt. And it strikes me that, that, that the understanding of our forgiveness is rooted, that, 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 I'm sorry, the understanding that our forgiveness is rooted in the compassion of God and not in our merit is fundamental to the gospel. And, really to, and I think the rest of the parable is going to bear this out. We get to the, the merciless servant in verse 28. When that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. Seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me and I will pay you. He refused and went out and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. So our, our servant who owed a bazillion dollars is, is released, but there's something wrong. He immediately uses this freedom grounded in the grace and mercy of the king to find someone who owes him some money. Now, the, the amount that's owed him is significant. It, 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 it's a hundred denarii, right? It, it represents a hundred days of earning. That, that's not a trifling amount. I, I, I think Jesus does that intentionally, right? Sin matters. When sins are committed against you, it matters. It's not a trifling thing. But compared to what that man had been forgiven, it's virtually zero. It's, <laughs> if you did the math, it'd be one six hundred thousandth of what the first slave had just been forgiven. Maybe if there were 600,000 people who owed him that much money, he could pay back the debt. Of course, that's ridiculous, right? So the, and, and the second slave's groveling appeal to his creditors described in almost the same words as the first slave to the king, right? Jesus does that on purpose. Have patience with me. Except this time, he doesn't say, and I'll pay you back everything. He says, I'm gonna, I'll pay you. I'll pay you. It's even a more legitimate response. First slave ludicrously offered to repay everything. Second slave, he's less specific, but seems more realistic. His debt's within reach. Verse 31, when his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. They went out and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me, and should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. The jailers, literally in the Greek, the torturers. The torturers. Some of the other servants are watching and they're shocked. They saw the mercy of the king and they're shocked by this failure of this guy to exercise toward his fellow slave even a little of the generosity with which he himself had just been treated. If the king had insisted on his rights, there would have been no mercy. We find here that he expects the same of the slave. You see, that the master was willing to forgive a debt the slave could never have paid. But... His refusal. That is, the king will not forgive a refusal of an act of generosity which was in his power. If this servant, from the king's perspective, is determined to insist on his just deserts, then he shall have them. That, that forgiveness that was freely granted is now withdrawn. Not, not because the slave is any more likely to pay off the debt, but because he proved that he was unworthy that is, he had completely misunderstood and doubted his master's mercy. He had misunderstood why he was released. 
And his actions demonstrate that. And this time, it's worse. Instead of being sold, he's going to be tortured. So Jesus concludes, he says, So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. This reminds me of the confrontation of David by the prophet Nathan after David had sinned against Uriah and then against Bathsheba, had engaged in an extensive cover-up. And so Nathan comes to him and he tells him a parable of a, of a guy who wanted a sheep. Right? And, uh, and, and he tells him this parable about this guy who took someone else's sheep and this wealthy guy who had everything, but he took a poor man's sheep who didn't have anything. He took everything that one guy had when he had lots. And, and David is infuriated. Oh, that man does not deserve to live. And, and Nathan looks at him and he says to David, you are that man. Well, that's what Jesus is saying here. See, if, if, if you would have been listening to Jesus, you would have reacted with fury to the insensitivity, the arrogance of that slave who, who wasn't even able to see the inconsistency of his own behavior. And then you would thoroughly probably approve of the gruesome punishment received in verse 34. He was taken away to the torturers. Yeah, he got what he deserved. And then Jesus turns on you and he says, you are that man if you do not forgive from your heart. You see, if mercy is the characteristic of God, it should also be the characteristic of God's people. Conversely, where God's people don't show mercy, well, they can't expect to receive it because quite frankly, they probably aren't his people. God, whose generosity is beyond measure, will not forgive the unforgiving. Those who will not forgive must not expect to be forgiven. So we find here that a forgiving heart is evidence of being forgiven. Jesus, in the Lord's Prayer, when He's teaching His disciples how to pray, He, he, he instructs them to pray, forgive us our trespasses as we have forgiven others their trespasses against us. Augustine called that the terrible petition. God, I'm asking you to forgive me the way I forgive those who have sinned against me. Lord, with the same standard that I have forgiven others, I invite you to forgive me. See, Jesus is teaching that forgiveness and mercy are essential aspects of kingdom living. Those who refuse to forgive, who refuse mercy, will not be shown forgiveness themselves. Of course, and this is consistent through all the New Testament. James in chapter 2, verse 13 says, Judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Why is this? Why? Why are the unforgiving not forgiven? I think it boils down to the gospel. The logic is rooted in understanding the gospel. You know, we might be motivated to root the logic in some sort of sentimentality, right? shamed into forgiving. God has forgiven you so much and you can't forgive your brother? Shame on you. How, how can you do that? But, but, but that's not what's going on here at all, I don't think. The logic of the prayer request, the logic of the parable is rooted in the Gospel. The Gospel itself. What is it to forgive? Basically, it's to relinquish your right to punish to refuse to take vengeance, to refuse to have the debt paid back. Now, you could forgive, I suppose, forgive and say, I, I don't care if you're ever punished. It doesn't matter to me. I'm just going to forgive you. But most people can't consciously do that. They might say they can, but I don't think they can at all. I think America's testimony that we harbor grudges really well. 
I don't think that's the way the universe works. And I know that God can't do that. We've seen that. Recall that God also demands that we put vengeance into His hands. See, why is God able to forgive? Because Christ paid the penalty for your sin. That's why God is able to forgive. Why are you able to forgive your brother? Because Christ went to the cross. You're able to forgive for the exact same reasons that, that God can. Christ paid the penalty for that sin. And it's for this reason that forgiveness is reciprocal. Here, God's forgiveness comes first, but, but it's withdrawn when the person who was forgiven fails to forgive another. To, it, it's like this. To ask to be forgiven while oneself refusing to forgive another is hypocritical. It, it, it reveals that, that we don't understand the basis for our forgiveness. At, at worst, it reveals that we don't understand or maybe we don't even believe the gospel. So what do we do with this? The heart of forgiveness is my personal act to release the one who has sinned against me from my personal right to, co- to collect on that debt, to pay, to, have, to pay him back for his offense. Instead of hurting him back, basically what I do is I, is I absorb that hurt into myself, and I'm able to do that because God, because Christ went to the cross and atoned for sin. There's going to be three more sermons that I suspect they're going to flesh this out in, in relational detail. But, but think on it this way. Here's an example. Let's say my wife sins against me. Most of my marital strife that I have is caused by me. And, and I think anybody who is looking around, who is watching us would say that's the case. But, but in those odd instances where my wife actually sins against me, here, here's the deal. Here is Todd, a, a child of the King, a brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, an adopted son of God, who has been saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and how do I stand before God? I stand before God on the basis of what Jesus Christ has done for me. I have been declared righteous in God's sight, not because of any merit in myself, not because of anything that I've done, but because Jesus died for me. Okay? And I know that. I know that. And let's say my wife sins against me and I refuse to forgive. What am I actually saying? Lord, I know that I have sinned against you, but Christ paid that penalty. Christ's death was sufficient for my sin, but when my wife sins against me, Christ's blood is not sufficient for that. I'm going to make her pay. The blood of Jesus Christ, which purifies me from all unrighteousness, is not sufficient for my wife. I'm going to make her pay. It's basically what we're doing when we refuse to forgive. When we refuse to forgive someone from the heart. Why doesn't God just forgive? Because He can't. Why does God forgive? Because He's merciful and motivated by that mercy. He sent His Son to atone for sin. And that is the basis. That is the ground of all forgiveness in the cosmos. So I know how I forgive. And if you're a, and, and if you're a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, I know how you do. And it's no surprise to me that even though people in the world say they forgive, they're fundamentally unable to do that because they don't understand what Christ has done at the cross. But when you forgive, when you forgive another, you are testifying to the reality of the gospel. God cannot just forgive, but He forgives because of Jesus. You cannot just forgive, 
but you have been forgiven and therefore you can forgive because of what Jesus did for you. Forgiveness is possible because of the cross. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for revealing not just the depth of our own sin, but also the, the, the depth of Your compassion in this parable. We, we recognize that we owe an infinite amount, that we were totally unable to reconcile that debt. And You and Your mercy, motivated by compassion, You absorbed that debt into Yourself. You paid that Yourself by sending Your Son. It is a small thing to say, but we say thank You for that. Thank you for making forgiveness possible. And Father, transform our hearts to where we are consciously dependent upon that gospel that has saved us, even to save the relationships that we have with one another. May we always be dependent upon the gospel. It is the ground for your forgiveness of us, and it is the ground for our forgiveness of others. Jesus has paid the debt. We contribute nothing to it. Enable us to act as though we know and understand and believe that. Bless us, please, in Jesus' name. Amen.